Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask my name, and, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. <clears throat> His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know what you know, uh, that now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming in. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you like any strange combinations? Even that kind of gets you thinking about some weird foods, maybe, that are unique to your home. Christmas in America makes for some really strange combinations, right? The baking phenomenon known as fruitcake <laughs> makes its way into our bakeries and our conversations this time of year. Some of us will even eat it. Whether you love it or hate it, I think you will agree that this dish is a unique combination of fruit and cake, a unique combination of sugar and spice. 
On the few occasions I've eaten fruitcake, I thought, uh, there are some familiar things about this. Uh, and then there are some very unique and awkward what is really going on. This is a strange combination. The music playing all around us. I was out in public this week and hearing the music playing on other people's speakers reminded me that there are wild combinations in Christmas playlists that are playing out loud. You'll hear one song declare, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Yes. And then the very next song will begin to describe a different creature known as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And this season that we're in keeps pushing these weird things together. It just makes for strange combinations. Many other strange combinations gather around us this time of year, but I'd like to speak to you this morning about a combination of things that hover around Jesus from the time of his birth, throughout his ministry, at his death and resurrection, and his second coming. I'm not talking about fruitcake, I'm not talking about weird combinations of songs, but I'm talking to you about Jesus, who from his earliest days brought the combination of both joy and sorrow. Both of those things come into the world and are at every turn where Jesus goes, joy and sorrow are combined together. This particular combination is hard to sustain, right? It's hard to sustain joy and sorrow together at the same time. We want the joy, don't we? We want the joy. I'd rather not deal with the sorrow that comes with Christ. We love to tell the story of happy angels singing for excited shepherds. But it's hard to make room for Herod's murderous wrath in the children's nativity play. That sort of stuff gets edited out. But at the coming of Christ, right, there are happy shepherds, happy and joyful angels. And then there is a wicked king who, who would rather kill all of the children of a particular age in his kingdom so that he wouldn't feel threatened. Joy and sorrow are combined. They're mixed. We're all wishing this could be a month filled with pure joy, right? October, November comes around and think, oh, December, most wonderful time of the year. I'm going to be with family. We're going to have gifts. We're going to make plans. And everything is just going to be wonderful. But for many of us, this is an extremely difficult time. This is maybe the hardest month of the year. Why? Because plans don't go the way we hope. And for many, this time of year marks a bitter anniversary. Christmas isn't fun. It's a reminder that dad's not here. Christmas isn't fun. It's a reminder that life is hard. As we live within the competing combination of joy and sorrow, I want to draw one big idea from our text this morning and press it in on your heart and mind. In the midst of all of the combinations of all of the distractions that are going on, I want to zero in and I want to press one thing in on your mind and I want to press it in on your heart. The big idea I want to draw out of John 16 this morning is that Christ Jesus was born to secure joy and give gifts Christ Jesus was born. Why? To secure joy. To 
to give gifts. As we walk through this text this morning, I want to take it in three separate moves. Three separate moves as we uh, come at this one big idea, three different settings or perspectives or elements that I want to press in on you so that this one big idea of Christ was born to secure joy and give gifts. First, we'll look at the fact that Christ came. Second, that he promised joy. And thirdly, that he gave gifts. Christ came. He secures joy. He promised joy and he gave gifts. Let's look at this first point. Christ came. John 16 is part of what is known as the farewell discourse in which Jesus prepares his disciples for his death, resurrection, and ascension before the Spirit is given at Pentecost. Uh, some of you are thinking, John 16 is not a Christmas passage. This is not where we go to talk about the birth of Christ. And you may be thinking, this is a really weird, strange decision this guy has made. Um, and it might seem like it's not talking about the birth and incarnation of Christ at all, but give me a chance. Let me show you how this speaks to the coming and the birth of Christ. In verse 28, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And in the verse prior, Jesus commends his disciples for believing that he, quote, came from God. And the disciples repeat this idea in verse 30 when they tell Jesus, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. As Jesus speaks about his existence among these men who have spent every day of three years with him, he doesn't speak in a normal human way, right? Being able to make clear and helpful uh, observations of the text requires us to make obvious ones. We can simply say, I don't know what's going on here, but that's not the normal way that one man speaks to another. Jesus isn't speaking in a normal way. He says that he came from the Father and that he came into the world. And the disciples fully agree when they say that he, quote, came from God. You don't need to know everything that's going on in this text, but I think all of us should be able to nod our head and say, yeah, that's a little strange. That's not normal. Jesus is speaking about his being with them, and he's speaking about where he came from in a different way than Peter would speak to John or James would speak to Judas. He's not speaking simply like one man to another. He's speaking differently. All of us came from somewhere, right? A real profound reality here. You're with, follow me so far. You, 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 and you, you came from somewhere. Some of us came from Kentucky, some from the northern United States, some from Texas, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And if you live in Charleston, everybody's from somewhere else, it seems, Right? Some of you walked to this church building this morning while others drove from West Ashley, Johns Island, or even all the way from Goose Creek and Ladson, Somerville area. Some of you were born into healthy families. And some not so much. Some of you were born to Christian parents. Some not so much. We all came from somewhere and we were born into some set of circumstances or another. But not one of us can say, like Jesus, that we came from God. Mm -hmm. 
Where did you come from? I've not heard any of you say, I came from God. Tell me where you came from, what school you went to, all sorts of different places where you came from. But Jesus says, I came from God. Prior to being carried in our mother's wombs, we what? We didn't exist. But prior to being carried in Mary's womb, Jesus created the world. He sustained it by the word of his power and governed all creation as the Son of God from before the foundations of the world. What did you do before you were in your mother's womb? Goose eggs, nothing. Jesus created all that is. Listen to this. Jesus created his mother. Jesus created every angel that announced his birth to the shepherds who were watching sheep, that each and every one of those sheep Jesus created for his own glory. Where do you come from? You don't come from God. Jesus says, I come from God, and this is his uniqueness. Every one of us came from somewhere, but Jesus came from God. Every one of us was born in some situation or another, but Christ alone was God and was with God before Joseph named him Jesus. Here you have it right in front of you. Jesus confessing that he is the Son of God who has been with the Father but has come to earth. It's right there. Right there in front of you, and I want you all to see it. Children, do you see it? Jesus is right there in front of each and every one of us telling us that he is the Son of God who came from God. He wasn't simply born like you and I are born. He came from God. It's right there in front of you. The disciples who spent an incredible amount of time with Jesus in a wide variety of settings and circumstances, and what do they do? Oh, there you go, Jesus, talking crazy again. No, they confess their belief that Jesus came from God. Jesus is saying, I came from God. You came from somewhere, I came from God. And the disciples, yes and amen, you know things, you have done things, you have shown us that you came from God. Some of you may hear this in your initial response is unbelief. That's a cute Christmas story. This is like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus, other weird things that people talk about this time of year. Your initial response is you hear Jesus claiming to be the Son of God and you hear disciples confessing that this is the truth. And you think, this is, this is craziness. You might think of Jesus as an important historical figure, or that he was even a gift to humanity for his moral teaching. But the idea that he is God is just too much for you to accept. You're enlightened. You're modern. You're educated. You're not some podunk fisherman who believes every dumb thing that's told to him. You're smart. You think Jesus claiming to be God is just a silly myth for silly people. And if that's your assessment of things, I'm not mocking you. I'm not pushing you away. But I want to ask your permission if I can ask you a couple questions. 
How do you deal with Jesus' claim to be far more than a good or important man? And how do you deal with the confession of these disciples? Were you there to say what kind of man Jesus really was? The disciples were with him every day for three plus years. And they said, you're you're from God. The testimony of scripture says that the people who were closest to him, who saw him in a variety of circumstances, day after day after day after day, they saw him hungry, they saw him hangry, they saw him tired, they saw him in the evening, they saw him in the morning, they saw him on weekdays and weekends, they saw him and said, you are God. What do you deal with? A conf- How do you handle a confession like that? What are you going to do with that? Can, is it really fair for you to just dismiss that and to say, he was a good teacher. He said some good things. Really appreciate that love your neighbor as yourself thing. These men walked with Jesus. They witnessed his healings. They witnessed his miracles. They saw him go to his crucifixion and they spoke with him after his resurrection. And these men confessed that he is God. Maybe you think the Bible's been tainted by human error. And these confessions aren't reliable. These are just made-up confessions. Let me simply and humbly say that if you believe that the Bible can be, can't be trusted because it was written by men, let me simply say that you are relying on a different human's teaching. Every one of us is standing on the confession of some men. Every one of us is reading some text and saying, that's reliable. And so if you want to stand and say, you Christians are crazy for believing a Bible that's been tainted by the hands of men, where did you get that idea? Who told you that? That comes from somewhere. And that's been handed down from one man to another for a little while. None of us can escape the fact that we have to trust someone. We have to take someone's word. You can't just say, I don't trust the, the terms of the conditions and the, and the confessions of Scripture because that's a tainted human source. Well, guess what? That, I, that idea came from a man's mind, and it came to you through a man's mouth, and it came to you, and you were accepting it. There is no escaping the need to accept and trust the testimony of other people. All of us have to do it. You think you're standing in some high ground because you don't trust in Scripture. Listen, you're trusting someone else. You're trusting someone else's word, someone else's testimony. The question I simply want to say to you is if we're at odds here, I simply want to ask you, are you trusting the right people? You're trusting someone's testimony. Maybe it's not Scripture. Are you trusting the right people? Is the Bible a reliable guide or is the man who told you the Bible can't be trusted a reliable guide? You have to choose. We're both trusting documents written by fallible humans. You realize every blog post and every tweet is written by a fallible human being, correct? It's not just the scriptures that are handed down from generation to generation. 
We're both trusting documents written by fallible humans, but one of us is wrong in putting our trust in the wrong place. Would you agree? One of us is wrong. Don't be lazy and just point the finger away from yourself. There's so much academic and mental laziness. Ah, you're wrong because you trust the scriptures. I don't trust the scriptures. You're just being lazy. You're being lazy. Somebody else is wrong and I'm right. Don't be lazy. You're trusting someone. Are you trusting a reliable witness? And I must say, just to assuage any Christians here who are, are uh, discouraged that I haven't said anything, we believe we are trusting in documents written by fallible human beings, yes and amen, but we believe that the Spirit kept them from making errors, yes and amen. That's what we believe. All of us are trusting someone. All of us are trusting something. For those of you who agree with the Bible and would readily receive Jesus as God, let me ask you to assess your situation as well. This isn't simply time for me to talk to an unbeliever or a person who rejects the Bible. I want to talk to those of you who receive the scriptures as authoritative as well. Let me simply ask, is there proof in your life that you actually believe that Jesus is God? Is there proof of that? Do you receive his words as God speaking to you? It's easy to say those unbelievers or those people who don't accept the Bible, they're just wrong, they're just wrong, they're just wrong. But are you receiving the scriptures as if God is speaking to you? I hate to say that if your Bible sits unattended all week long, I, let me challenge you a little bit. I don't think you believe that God is actually speaking. You know what's better than someone telling you, coming back into history from the future to tell you about what's going to happen in a decade? You know what's better than that? Jesus, the Son of God, speaking to you, giving you his word, telling you how to live. There's nothing sweeter than that. And yet so many of us keep making excuses. We don't, we aren't in the scriptures, we aren't in the word. I just simply want to say, brother, if you believe that the scriptures are God's word, prove it. Is his standard, Jesus' standard of right and wrong, wise and foolish, the standard you live by, or are you living your life by some other standard? Are Jesus' commands shaping your life? Are his priorities shaping your calendar? We cannot just simply say God's word is God's word. Believe it. Prove it. Show it. Friends, who's telling the truth? The Bible or whoever told you that the Bible can't be trusted? Who's telling the truth? There's no question more important than that one. So if you're stuck and you don't know how to answer that question, I would, I would encourage you to start journaling and thinking about that question right now. Because what, what I have to say is completely dependent upon the fact that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe that he came and he promised joy and he gave gifts. But if he is just some decent teacher, then all of this is a waste of time. After confessing his divinity and reminding his disciples that he has come 
to them from the Father's side. He tells them about the joy that he brings. So let's look at this second point. Jesus promised joy. Our passage this morning begins with Jesus telling his disciples in verse 16, quote, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. The disciples are clearly confused, but you and I are able to see these words in light of the whole story, right? We are able to understand that Jesus is, is telling them that he will be soon taken from them and crucified. His burial will hide him from them, but then his resurrection from the dead will reveal him to them again. As Jesus helps the disciples understand, he says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The joy Jesus is preaching is the joy of his resurrection. This joy requires the sorrow of the cross to come first where Jesus would bear the penalty of the, for the sins of all who believe in him. Sorrow must come before the joy. And you see him clearly say, you are going to weep and lament, and the world's going to rejoice. When did that happen? Very clearly at the crucifixion of, of Christ. Many were rejoicing, but the disciples and those who trusted in him were weeping and full of lamentation. And then Jesus says, you'll be sorrowful, but that sorrow will turn, turn into joy. Jesus then illustrates the glory of this joy that is greater than the necessary sorrow by pointing to the painful experience of birth in verse 21. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her time is, has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy joy that a human being has been brought into the world. Jesus is clear to communicate to his disciples that the joy he promised both follows necessary sorrow and, hear me, totally overwhelms that sorrow. Jesus would have us see every mother of multiple children, and I know there's a couple in this room, every mother who's had a child gone through the difficulty of having a child and said, let's do that again. Let's do that again. Let's do that again. Every mother of multiple children is a clear sign to us that the discomfort and trauma of childbirth is totally worth it. And in seeing this come to believe that the joy of the resurrection makes the horror of the cross totally worth it. It blows me away, right? Men, husbands, fathers have a very different experience of childbirth. But I was there in proximity to watch a woman be sick, to watch a woman grow out of everything in her closet, to watch a, woman, a woman's body do unspeakable things, to bring a human being into the world. And as a, as a father, for the very first time seeing that, I'm like, whoa, that was exactly as it was explained to me, but that is wild. And it, it blows my mind as a father of four to, to see my wife gladly volunteer. Let's do that again. Let's do that again. Childbirth is not easy. 
It's not fun from beginning to end, but the joy of having a little another child in your home is totally worth it. You'd think, you know, if men had to do the trauma of, of giving birth, we'd sit around and talk about it for the rest of our lives. Right? Well, let me tell you about this one time, all these different, all this pain that I went through, and we'd flex about how bad our childbirth was. But moms, what do they do? They sit around and they talk about how beautiful their babies are. Not that they never speak about the difficulties of childbirth. But the grief, the anguish melts away because the child is totally worth it. The joy is totally worth it. The sorrow, Jesus isn't talking about childbirth. Don't let me, don't let me meander and, and lose my place thinking about having children and the, the wildness of childbirth. Jesus isn't talking primarily about childbirth. He's talking about the joy of the resurrection that would make the horrors of the cross totally worth it. The sorrow that the disciples would experience by watching Jesus being torn from their presence. The sorrow of watching Jesus be arrested and beaten and crucified was going to be heart-wrenching. But Jesus promises in verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus was with the disciples praying and they took him from them. They couldn't get him back. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you joy that no one can snatch from you. No one can ever take from you. The joy Jesus promises his disciples is preceded by a terrible cross, but it's followed by a heart-bursting joy that will endure without fail. Friends, if you simply meditate on verse 22, your heart will explode. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Cancel your plans for the afternoon and spend an hour just thinking about that. What a precious promise. Christian, you are currently living in this post-resurrection joy. Hear me. This joy that Jesus is speaking about specifically, you are already in it. You are looking back on the resurrection. Jesus has gone to the cross, paid the penalty, risen, shown himself the conqueror over, over death, and you and I are living in that post-resurrection joy. The salvation-securing death of the Son of God is behind us historically, and we stand upon the glory of the resurrection as an established work of God already completed. We will not endure the death of Jesus again. Hear me. There is one cross in history. Jesus went to the cross. He died once. That will not happen again, for he has been raised by the power of an indestructible life. that we are living in the promised post-resurrection joy should and it will gladden our hearts. But if we're honest, I think all of us will admit that our lives are less than the fullness of joy. Post-resurrection joy. Yeah, I can kind of 
get along with that, but I wouldn't say my life is the movement from one overwhelming joy to the next. Sorrow and anguish and grief are still very much part of our life. So, does Jesus really provide sorrow erasing joy or not? Jesus just said that he promised to give joy that would do away with sorrow, but I feel some anguish pretty acutely right now. I can remember an awful lot of painful circumstances in my life. I don't feel like those sorrows have been erased. So am I really living in some post-resurrection joy? Is that really what's going on here? Or is this just some religious naivety that pretends like life isn't crazy hard? Let me just encourage you, the scriptures aren't afraid of your questions. Do you see how confused the disciples are in this text? Jesus says, I know your questions. Let me speak to that. So, are we experiencing the sorrow-erasing joy of the resurrection currently or, or not? The answer to that question about the sorrow we still endure is addressed in verse 33. Jesus tells his soon-to-be distraught disciples, quote, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. This is encouraging and right in line with what Jesus has already said, but look at what follows. Jesus goes on to say, these are those promises we don't like so much. In the world you will have tribulation. Then he goes on to say, but take heart. Take heart, brother. Take heart, sister. I have overcome the world. The language and manner of speaking in verse 33 has shifted slightly. And I think the shift is largely not for the disciples themselves, but largely for you and for me. We weren't there watching Jesus go directly to the cross and then enduring three days of pain until we saw him resurrected. I think the language shift is particularly for those of us living many, many years after. Jesus doesn't seem to be speaking as specifically about the cross here at the end of this passage. He's not speaking about it specifically, at least as he was. When he says, in the world you will have tribulation, he seems to be preparing these disciples to carry the joy of resurrection into jail cells and the various tribulations that they would endure. And I think you and I will do well to take these words as spoken directly to us. The scriptures, John 16, is not simply written to first century believers, it's written to you and to me. And so if we take these words, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If we take these words to be for us, hear me, brother, sister, disciple of Jesus Christ, in this world you will have tribulation. Don't be surprised. Jesus has promised it. You will have trouble. 
But listen to what we are told next. Hear me. Particularly those of you who are on the verge of tears or on the verge of giving, hanging it all up. Jesus says, take heart. Take heart, struggling, grieving, weeping, aching, saint. Jesus has overcome the world. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has overcome the powers of darkness that threaten and steal our joy. But Jesus has promised that our joy will not be taken from us. And when Jesus returns to take us into his eternal dwelling, hear me, all grief will evaporate. All of it. It'll, it'll evaporate and it will be forgotten like a delighted mother's all-night labor and next day C-section is forgotten in the course of time. When Christ returns, your worst years will evaporate. You'll be able to look at those things and say, Totally worth it. Totally worth it. What are you enduring right now? What tribulation has come upon you? Hear the words of Jesus. Take heart. Take heart. Don't give up. Take heart. Is it just an encouraging word built upon no foundation? No. Take heart because Christ has overcome the world. These tribulations that are all about you, take heart, brother. Christ has overcome the world. You're going to forget it. Just like your mama forgot about how much trouble you caused her on your birthday. Jesus has promised unquenchable joy. Brother, sister, hear me. Jesus has promised unquenchable joy. And as we wait for the fulfillment of the promise, he gives us peace in knowing that his resurrection has overcome the world. Are we to live joyless, grumpy old lives until Jesus comes back? Dragging our heels, oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. No. No. Take heart. Peace I leave with you. I said these things to you so that you'd have peace. Even in the midst of tribulation, you can have peace until the fullness of the promise of overwhelming joy is come. This gift of peace as we wait for the promised joy would certainly be enough for us to delight in this morning. Wouldn't it? To just say, Jesus said to have peace. Jesus said to have peace in the midst of my tribulation. And then on the other end of this tribulation, I'm going to have joy that's going to make all this evaporate. That would be enough to go home with, wouldn't it? I could be happier this afternoon with that. But as with all things, Jesus goes above and beyond. And he gives more than simply the promise of peace in the midst of trials. Look with me at this third point that Jesus gave gifts. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. 
Jesus then revisits this incredible gift in verses 26 and 27 when he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This precious gift that Jesus is giving to his disciples through his death and resurrection is the precious gift of prayer. But not prayer in the old manner of prayer. Jesus is bestowing the gift of prayer to his disciples who are receiving an intimate VIP friends and family relationship with God Almighty. Instead of taking needs to a priest or taking our requests to a mediator, Jesus says, because you have received me in faith, you can have confidence that God the Father himself loves you and is eager to hear your voice. This is one of the great and terrible things about growing up in the church for me at least. I have often overlooked the preciousness of the gift of prayer. I have prayed more days in my life than I haven't. But listen, the gift of prayer is right in front of you and you just treat it. We all just treat it as it's some common silly little thing. But God has, the God who paves the streets of gold, he gives us precious gifts that are right there in front of us. We often miss the riches that are given to us. We don't take our needs to a mediator who can talk to God on our behalf. If you try to call the president or the mayor even, you're going to have to talk to his secretary or her secretary. But Jesus says, because you've believed in me, have confidence that the Father himself loves you and hears your voice speaking directly to him. Saints, even now, your weak faith and your stumbling love for Jesus is proof that God has done a gracious work of salvation in you. And that unimpressive faith that you wish would grow, that unimpressive faith that you possess secures for you the truly awesome gift of intimacy with the Almighty. Not only do we have peace in the midst of tribulation, but Jesus says, you have a direct line to God the Father. Talk to him because he loves you. Oh, that God would give us grace to understand the, the beauty of this. Jesus has given us intimacy with his Father. We have intimacy. We have a direct conversation to the one who put the rings around Saturn. You talk to him. You aren't just sitting in your same old chair having a quiet time. You are speaking to the Father who loves you, who did not love you until Christ came and redeemed and reconciled and put the two of you back together again. You, at this very moment, can speak to God if you are in Christ, even with weak faith. This is not a gift 
This is not a gift given to those who give a certain amount of money. This is not a gift given to those who've been Christian for so many decades. This is a gift given to the brand new believer who doesn't even know how weak their faith is. Direct conversation with God the Father. Confidence that he loves you. I don't know what you're getting for Christmas or what you got for last Christmas, but it ain't better than that. By sheer and amazing grace, Jesus has paid for our pardon. Praise God. And then he's done everything necessary for his disciples to come directly to God the Father, not in nervousness or confusion about what will happen, but with absolute confidence in God's love for us. Preaching out of of my microphone. Brothers and sisters, absolute confidence that the person on the other line loves you. Absolute, some of you don't even know what this means. <laughs> Absolute confidence. Gene, you know what I mean, right? We got the... the <laughs> Absolute confidence. Not because I'm good. Not because I pray a lot. Not because I love my church. Not because I love my enemies. Absolute confidence. Because Jesus said, because of faith in Christ, God the Father loves us. Brothers and sisters, God the Father, by the word of Jesus, tells us that he's eager to give everything we ask for in our prayers, which are in keeping with the character and mission of Jesus. We have a sweet relationship with the Father. It's yours. It's been given to you in Christ. It's precious. That that longing for a dear and loving Father that all of us have is fulfilled and exceeded by our relationship with God the Father. You can have absolute confidence that the Lord delights to hear you and he's eager to to respond to your prayers that are in keeping with the person and work of Jesus. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, Christians are given a relationship with God in prayer. What an awesome gift. Truly awesome Through the work of Jesus, our prayers to God are nothing like casting coins in a wishing well, but it's more like sending a text to your best friend. Some of us think of prayer as like pulling change out of our pocket and tossing it in a body of water and hoping for the best. Is that the way you view prayer as a Christian? It's much more like sending a text to your best friend who's eager to hear you ask for help. Jesus gives good gifts. Hopefully this image is as encouraging and helpful to you as it is to me, but I love the way Tim Keller has put it. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child we have that kind of access. Christian, Jesus hasn't only made promises of future gifts and future joys. He has, praise God, and we have 
much joy now because of it. But right now, in this very moment, he has made a way for you to speak with God Almighty with full confidence of his deep and generous love toward you. If you are in Christ and you believe that God doesn't want to hear, a vo- hear your voice, you're wrong. If you, are, if you are trusting in Christ as the Son of God and the, your Savior, and you believe that God doesn't want to hear from you, you're wrong. If you believe that God is grumpy, like your father was grumpy when you came to him with requests, you're wrong. Jesus says the Father loves us in Christ, and we have an opportunity for a remarkably intimate relationship with him in prayer. God tells us that we should have full confidence of his deep and generous love toward us. If you are in Christ, you have the promise of a future home in the new earth, but you also have been given the gift of access to the very throne of God as a beloved child of the King. So now I can kind of go back to the beginning, right? Not all of us believe that the scriptures are true. Not everyone believes that Jesus came from God. If you believe, joy is promised to you and intimacy with God in prayer is promised to you. If you don't believe, this is not a gift or a promise for you. And so I want to call you. Quit resisting Jesus. Trust him. Join in on this. I would love to to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and say this man once hated all things about God, but now he is alive in Christ and he's eagerly awaiting Christ's return. I would love to see that. We hold no animosity against you, unbeliever. Long to see you turn and come to know the peace and the joy and the intimacy that only Christ can give. Life in Christ is a challenging combination of sorrow and joy. It's a trying combination of anguish and peace. We are waiting for Jesus' return when he will do away with the sorrow and he will do away with the anguish for all those who believe upon his name. One day, brother, one day, sister, we will know peace without tribulation. Can you imagine that? But until that day, Jesus has secured for us joy in his resurrection and intimacy with God in prayer. Brother, sister, rejoice. Christ has come. Christ has come and he's made promises of joy and he's given us the precious gift of prayer.